0: Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. The players are about to be released from their soft and hard quarantines and the ATP Cup is four days away. So on today's episode, I will preview the ATP Cup, but it's not like another tournament. So I'm not going to preview it like any other tournament. That just wouldn't work. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why in a moment. At the end of the show, I just want to do a bit of a A notebook dump, if you will, because the the players have had a lot of time to chat with with the media, I'd say, and maybe do some appearances that that tennis players sometimes don't always do. So we will hear from Rafael Nadal, who really uh, gave an interview to CNN, which gives good insight on his perspective throughout all of this. Uh, we will hear from Stefano Tsitsipas, who gave a great interview to Blair Henley on her YouTube channel. And finally, we will not hear from Andre Rublev, but there is a documentary out about Andre Rublev. It is in Russian. I watched a lot of it with English subtitles. And I will give you a little bit of a taste of uh, what my takeaways were from this Andre Rublev documentary. That and, of course, the stat of the week powered by DB4Tennis. But let us begin with... ...with the ATP Cup preview. I'm excited for this. This was an event that gave us a lot of great matches last year. A lot of great moments. A great hardcourt match between Nadal and Djokovic. The second set between them was tremendous tennis. Uh, The match of the year ATP Cup brought us between Djokovic and Medvedev. A classic between Dimonor and Nadal. A testy match between Medvedev and Schwartzman some crazy Stefano pass moments and drama uh, Team Australia was was a pleasure to watch with curios and Demonor no Nick Curios though in this year's ATP Cup because John Millman is ranked higher than curios so that's a little interesting wrinkle this year uh, if it's any kind of consolation I did put Curios on the thumbnail so that's something at least he gets as a uh, memento but no ATP Cup for him as I got at at the top of the show, normally I like to predict tennis tournaments. It's fun. I think you guys enjoy it. So so what I do is I take the draw and I predict every single match. If it's a major, starting with the 64 first round matches and then going to the round of 32 in the quarterfinal and the semifinal and the final. And that's how I do it. And then I do the preview. Very simple. Very easy. But this format does not lend itself to that. So, I needed to think really, really hard. And you know, I'm I've never been a math guy. I've never been an algorithm guy, but I'm kind of proud of myself because I I used science, science, okay, to figure out how to predict the ATP Cup. That's right. Very proud of myself. Um, <laughs> and I came up with a system that I will share with you. After I explained the the format, just as a refresher for uh, anyone who who does not know, the way you qualify for the ATP Cup is it's normally 18 teams. And this year, due to the pandemic, it is 12 teams, which means the top 12 players in the country, uh, the country, the world, uh, qualify automatically. Japan is in it because Kane Ishikura used his protected ranking. So that's why Japan is in it. Australia is in it automatically because they are the host country. Not that Demonor is too far off, right? But he wouldn't be qualified if uh, if Australia wasn't the host country. So that is how you qualify. And then there are four players on a team. Your first singles, your second singles, and then a doubles team, which is decided by the captain. Anyone, Any one of the four can play doubles. The first, the number two singles players play each other, then they play a doubles match, and then the number one singles players play each other. The way it's designed that way is that hopefully you can get that blockbuster first singles match to decide which country moves on. Doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes there are dead rubbers, a problem that Labor Cup got creative and solved, but uh, ATP Cup doesn't do it that way. So there are some dead rubbers. So as a result, I had to get creative. Uh, There are also different groups, okay? So there are four groups and whoever comes in first place in the group moves to the semifinals, right? So first there's a group stage, four groups of three teams, all right? You're bearing with me here, four groups of two teams. So here is how... I went about predicting this event. What I needed to do was I needed to first focus on singles, because if I brought doubles into the mix, my head was going to explode. It wasn't going to work. So I power ranked every single singles player in the field. That's how I started. Now there are, there's kind of an important distinction that I had to make to make it more accurate. In reality, I can't predict or even come close to it to predict exactly players 1 through 24 who's the the 4th best versus who's the 7th best. I'm going to make tons of errors if I do it that way. But I'm more confident in putting the players in tiers. So this is what I did. I'm going to put it up on the screen for those watching on YouTube. These are the players' power ranked. But don't pay too close attention to exactly what number I put the players. That doesn't matter. What does matter is that I think I have a pretty good idea of the tiers. And that way, players who are similar can be in the same tier, and it, it won't affect the results if, let's say, I, I rank Rublev over Zverev, but really Zverev is better than Rublev. Those small details won't matter, right? So in Tier 1, the elite of the elite, the players who are extremely, not only extremely dangerous, but extremely reliable. Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, and Dominic Thiem, and Rafael Nadal. In tier two, these players are extraordinarily dangerous, but a little bit more unpredictable. I think a lower degree of consistency. Three players, Andrei Rublev, Stefanos Tsitsipas, and Alexander Zverev. That's tier two. Then I have tier three, players who routinely go deep in tournaments who are very very difficult to, to beat aren't quite as as consistent when it comes to threatening the the very very top of the sport Roberto Bautista Agut, Diego Schwartzman, Denis Shapovalov, Milos Raonic and Alex de Minaur. That's tier 3. And right there that's your top 12. So that is the top half of the ATP Cup singles field. And then we have the second half, starting with Tier 4. Tier 4, are there are exceptional players. They have top 20 talent. Um, Matteo Berrettini, Gael Monfils, Fabio Fanini, and jan Lennard Struff, who I'm quite high on. These are all players who generally make it past the first round. They are... You know, uh, in their best years, above 500 players, and really uh, beat you know beat beat the the players outside of the top 50 with a high degree of consistency, and and they have they're very special players uh, in their own right. Then we get to tier five. Tier five, you have sort of a drop off because. These are players who sometimes do lose in your first round. They're largely excellent players. They are largely players inside the top 50. Guido Pela, Kei Nishikori, coming off an injury, he's just not, uh, I'm just not sure where his game is at. John Millman, who nobody likes to play, but he lacks firepower. Dusan laovic who's somewhat inconsistent and somewhat surface dependent. Benoit Pair, who uh, is is Extraordinarily talented, but just doesn't always bring his best to the tennis court or doesn't always bring his focus. And um, and uh, Nishioka, who uh, is just a little bit underpowered. Then your last tier is tier six, Dennis Novak and Pervolorakis. Purvalor- Pur- or Pervolorakis. To be honest, uh, I've never seen him play really, so. He's outside the top four hundred. Dennis Novak and uh, Pervalorikis; these are players who might not win a match, right? In their in their two opportunities. So then, of course, what did I do? I took the tiers, and for each country, I just did addition. So, for example, Team Russia: Daniil Medvedev is in Tier One. Andrei Rublev is in tier two. Russia gets a score of three. Take Austria, for example. Dominic Thiem is tier one. Dennis Novak is tier six. Austria scores at a seven. In the most basic way possible, this is how I formed my power rankings. The higher you were when I did that addition, the higher you were on the power ranking, right? Makes sense. Now, I'm not accounting for doubles. If there was a tie, then I went to doubles. So that's where doubles comes into play. But for the most part, you have two singles matches, one doubles match. So just using logic here, um, singles is twice as important as doubles in this event. So if there's a tie, I went to doubles. If there was a tie that couldn't be solved through even the, the doubles situation, then I actually went granular. And I added up the specific ranking, throwing away the tier. I I added up the the specific ranking, and that was also uh, a decision-making factor. So now I will pull up on YouTube. What is my power rankings for the ATP Cup? The number you see on the left is the tier ranking. When I added up the tier, the number you see on the right is the exact ranking that was uh, formulated through the power ranking. So I'll read it off. Monday match analysis available on all podcast platforms. We are audio friendly here. Number 1 is Russia. They they scored the highest. Number 2 is Spain, but these are both they both score both scored a 3. Okay? Russia just scored higher in the exact power rankings. Serbia, Canada, and Germany are your next um 3 teams. Serbia and Canada actually graded out identically. They, they both scored a six in tiers and an exact score of 21. So Serbia, Canada, the same. Okay. Germany, a tier six, but graded out a little bit lower in, uh, in the ranking. So it's Russia, Spain, Serbia, Canada, Germany. Then Austria scored a seven. Argentina, Italy, Greece, Australia. They all scored an eight. And the exact rankings of of them is, is as I read it, Argentina, Italy, Greece, Australia, France scored a nine, Japan scored a 10. There's your power rankings right there. Russia, Spain, Serbia, Canada, Germany, Austria, Argentina, Italy, Greece, Australia, France, Japan. There it is. Now we go to the groups because... You know, it's just like having a good draw, a bad draw. Your group matters. Group A is kind of the group of death because besides the top two teams, Spain and Russia, Group A has the next three best teams, three teams that scored a six, Serbia, Germany, and Canada. So these are my predictions for the group stage. In Group A, you have Serbia, Germany, Canada. I have Canada winning the group. And Serbia coming in second. So since all three of those teams graded out the same, I kind of just had to make judgment choices there. And Germany, again, was slightly lower when I added up the power rankings. So I would have needed a good reason to pick them because I would have needed to feel like they were superior in doubles. I really don't feel that way. Serbia has the Novak Djokovic factor, obviously a better number one player than Germany or Canada has to offer. Not that Shapovalov and Zverev can't challenge Djokovic and give him difficult matches. They can. But certainly having Novak is a big advantage. And I kind of like, I kind of think that Raonic and Shapovalov are going to play doubles together. I don't think Peter Polanski is going to step in for Canada unless I'm mistaken. And I do favor... Chapo and Miloš over Zverev and Jan-Leonard Struf in a doubles match. This is a tough group to call, but uh, I I ended up with Canada first and Serbia second. That's the most difficult group by far to make a judgment on. Group B, Spain, Greece, and Australia. Spain graded out as a three which is tied for the best in the field, Spain and Russia. Um, So Spain is a no-brainer to win this group. And then you have Greece, which scored an eight, and Australia, which also scored an eight. So, of course, I go to doubles. And I decided that Australia has a, a more dangerous doubles combination I pull it up right here. John Pierce is an excellent doubles player, one of the better players in the world. I think Alex DiMenoor is also a tremendous volleyer who brings really cool and interesting things to the doubles court. Plus, Australia has the home court advantage, which is a good tiebreaker over Greece, who of course has Stefano Tsitsipas, but has the, the weakest player in the field at number two. So Australia, with the crowd behind them, with the best circumstances when it comes to not really having to quarantine because they're already in the country. I think Australia is a no-brainer. I have them finishing second in Group B. In Group C, I have Austria finishing first, Italy finishing second. Austria um, graded a 7, and Italy and France graded an 8 and a 9, respectively. So the formula really spit out Austria and You know, again, I'm only going to overturn based on doubles or based on emotion. If 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 the formula, you know, I'm I'm really sticking to it here. So Austria wins Group C. We're riding with the system. We're not getting cute. We're not getting emotional. Okay, we are we are we're keep staying on the straight and narrow. Okay, Uh, we move along to Group D. Russia again. A completely stacked team, the highest graded team uh, based on the algorithm. Argentina in second over Japan. Japan, to me, is uh, probably the weakest in the field. So uh, they they ended up scoring a 10. So Argentina coming in second, Russia coming in first. Okay, let's move along to the semifinals. The way I have it, Canada would play Russia and Austria would play Spain. Spain against Austria, quite frankly, probably a mismatch. Because Spain is solidly two players deep. And Austria, with Dennis Novak as the number two, is really only one player deep. Russia versus Canada is fun. But it's it's really no competition. It's not much of a competition. Because Russia should have an edge in both matches. Two for two there. So, clearly... I think a Spain versus Russia final is in order. I think that we are destined for that to be the final. I hope that is the final. These teams are stacked. Let's just, before we get to the prediction, let's make sure we we have our grasp around what the teams are. Team Spain is coming out with Rafael Nadal, Roberto Bautista Agu, Marcel Granoye, and Pablo Carreno Busta. I'm surprised that PCB is, is playing this event. I feel like he could uh, he could play... I forget what else is going on, but he could play singles somewhere elsewhere, basically. Um, so that is Spain. Russia is Daniil Medvedev, Andre Rublev, Aslan uh, Karatsev, who will be in the Australian Open singles draw, and Evgeny Donskoy. So look, here's what it came down to. Singles-wise, I actually give an edge to Russia. They grade out higher. But again, this is about tiers. That Their tier ranking, which is a more accurate and safer way to grade these teams out, they're tied. So we got to go to doubles here. And there is only one answer for who is the superior doubles team. You got to give me Spain. You got to give me Spain here. Rafael Nadal, a tremendous doubles player, the best doubles player of the big three. He, he's such a good volleyer. He knows how to use his leftiness. He is a nightmare uh, to play doubles against because, because of how he hits the ball and how his ball can dip below the level of the net when he uh, is hitting off the ground and attacking the net players. So good at that. Um, has great fighting spirit, is a great team player. And you pair him... Likely with Marcel Granoyers, who is a world-class doubles player. Number three in the world for a lot of last season with Horacio Zabios, the Argentine. So you have Rafael Nadal with the world-class doubles player. Or, you know, I don't really care. You can put PCB in there. I think PCB has played some pretty good doubles from what I've seen. So Spain has the edge over Russia in doubles. Therefore, I see Spain completing the sweep. You know, they're the they're the 2019 Davis Cup champions. Serbia got the best of them in last year's ATP Cup. I think Spain, who has won 5 Davis Cups since 2004, one without Rafael Nadal, I think Spain is going to once again say, "Look, we might not be as dominant as we were in the 2010 era when when we had a bunch of players in the top 20, but we are still the best tennis nation in the world. It is time for the stat of the week, powered by DB4Tennis. No man has won a every major at least twice since Rod Laver. That's right, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, as great as they are, for as much as, as they have accomplished, they are all chasing the double grand slam. So let's take a closer look through the work done by the excellent DB4 tennis. So among the big three, Roger Federer was the first to accomplish the mission of winning all four when he collected the French Open title in 2009. Then Rafael Nadal, the very next year in 2010, won the U.S. Open and achieved the feat. Then it was Novak Djokovic quite a bit later in 2016, capturing his French Open title to compete his Grand Slam. So when it looks like, when you take a look at who has been chasing this feat the longest, it's Roger Federer since 2010. However, he's only reached the finals once in Paris and twice the semifinals. Nadal has been closer more often. He's played in four Australian Open finals. While the last time Djokovic was closest to writing history was just last year, when he had a chance to do it in October in Paris, when he played in his French Open final against Rafael Nadal. If we take a closer look at this quest to capture the double Grand Slam, well, we'll start with Roger Federer. He's appeared at the French Open seven times. He's played 38 matches. On average, he's went 5.43 rounds. Nadal has played the Australian Open nine times, seeking that second title. He's played 49 matches, and he's pretty much had the same average distance as Federer at the French with an average round of 5.44. Finally, Novak Djokovic, well, he's only played the French open seeking the second title, a grand total of four times, 23 matches. And he averages closer to a semifinal now because it's a 5.75 average round. So Djokovic has went quite far on average in the French open, uh, but the quest rolls on. That would be a huge resume boost for anyone who, if, if any of the big three managed to win that second title, that would be uh, huge. Okay. Um, I do want to talk about, let me move over to make some space here for the video that I want to pop over my left shoulder here. Uh, I watched an Andre Rublev documentary. Uh, the link to all three of the resources that I'm going to be talking about here will be in the description. So if you want to check out some of the content, um, go ahead and do that in the description. Couple things from Andre Rublev. One, he wants to be more selective with his schedule this year. He played so many events, and he he really did not mince his words. He was very confident. He said, "Look, I am going to play less. I am going to be more selective." He was, you know, by the time he played Paris, he lost early in Paris. He did not play great uh, in the Nitto year-end finals, except for the one match against Stefano Tsitsipas. I think that um, Andre Rublev could uh, do a little bit better conserving his energy, but you also can't blame him for the schedule he played last year. He only took a grand total of two weeks off. So that's one thing to look out for. The second thing that I thought was just funny is he doesn't allow his parents to attend his matches. There was a a story that they told at the U.S. Open where his parents sat in the top row on the side and Rublev spotted them and kicked him out. So no parents at Andre Rublev's tennis matches. As a tennis note, this is the most uh, germane nugget that I took from it. Uh, Rublev says he wants to be faster. He doesn't like that Daniil Medvedev is, is so much taller than him and so much faster than him. He doesn't like that. He said that bothers him. They are good friends. But all in all, the takeaway is that Rublev does want to improve his speed, which was interesting to me because I've always kind of looked at Andre Rublev's speed as something that, yes, it's gotten better. He's gotten bigger. He's gotten stronger. With that being said, I thought that maybe he'd just kind of throw in the towel on his speed and kind of accept, like, look, I'm I'm never going to be the fastest guy out there, but I'll make up for it with my serving, with my offense, with my dictating tennis. And that's what, what I anticipated Andre Rublev's mindset might be. He proved me wrong. Um, in this long-form documentary-style interview, when the, the one thing that he really pinpointed was that he, he wanted to be faster. So I found that interesting. Moving on, Rafael Nadal had admirable perspective on the Australia situation. I, I don't really blame players, for tennis players that is, for thinking about themselves. After all, they are elite athletes in an individual sport you have to have a degree of selfishness to compete and if you don't have that degree of selfishness you are not the rule you are the exception tennis players i think have a streak of selfishness inherently so i really don't blame that that players uh, some players lacked a bit of worldly perspective. I mean, come on, are we expecting too much of these people? They, they are j- only tennis players. With that being said, Nadal seems to rise above that. And in this CNN interview, he really did have an admirable perspective. Of course, it's a different situation than, than usual. No, it's uh, much more sad for everyone, but at least we are here, you know, and, uh, we're going to have the chance to, to play, uh, here, at the Australian swim. And um, the world is is suffering in general, no. So uh, we can't complain. We only can say thanks to to Tennis Australia, to the Australian community, to to welcome us, no, and to accept us to come because I know they they have been uh, under very strict measures for for a lot of months. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, for us, is uh, good, at least, that we can keep playing tennis. Kudos to Nadal for that. Stefanos Tsitsipas gave a great interview to Blair Henley on her YouTube channel. Once again, all these links will be in the description. Uh, Tsitsipas said that he had been experimenting with different racket technology, trying a heavier racket, trying different strings. Ultimately, uh, he went back to old reliable. He had the experimental technology... For the Western Southern Open and the U.S. Open, he ended up going back. Right now, again, he's with the same racket specs that he's been using for years and years and years now. He said that, you know, he's just had trouble switching and it seems like he has settled down. He's just going to use what has worked for most of his tennis career. But all of it was an effort to achieve this. This is what I thought was interesting. This is the, the vision that Stefano Tsitsipas has for his game. And this is what he's tried to do all off-season long. I tried to find new ways to become more aggressive and come to the net more often. Uh, things like this, or around, like evolving around um, aggression and um, just uh, becoming, a, becoming a quicker player. Uh, more uh, more offensive player. That, that was that was uh, the resolution. So it seems to me like Stefano Tsitsipas is really trying to lean into his strengths, and as I've watched him over the years, i felt that the more he's at the net, the better he tends to play, and I think it's a very key tactic against some of his chief rivals, a Daniil Medvedev, a Rafael Nadal, a Dominic Team, all players who are excellent defenders, and all players who like to utilize deep court position to aid their defense, and what better way to try to bother their defense and try to attack their deep uh, court position and making their defensive efforts more difficult, um, what better way than to come to the net and finish points with the, uh, the transition game? There is no better way. So it's good to see that that has been an emphasis for Tsitsipas, and let's see if we see... A uh, a ramped up frequency of net play from the Greek. I cannot wait to stop talking about the future and speculating and predicting. I, I just want to talk about some real tennis. Let's get this show on the road. The 2021 season is upon us. I can't wait and uh, I believe uh, we will have tangible tennis to talk about come next Monday Match Analysis. Remember, MMA is available on all podcast platforms. Huge favor if you leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. That does wonders for me. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks?